to actually having contact with family and so on, because it's a chance to really apply the teachings in a very immediate and direct way, rather than coming far away to a distant place and spending a chunk of time out of your usual environment. You're actually practicing on the spot. And you may find it actually more helpful in terms of continuing the practice, just getting into the habit of practicing in your home. Because that's, of course, what I always encourage. I always give a little talk at the end of the retreat about continuing your practice when you go home. But now you're at home. (laughs) So hopefully that'll work well for you. What I like to do, first of all, is to have the introductions. So normally at this time, I would take time for everybody to formally determine the three refuges and the five precepts. But what I thought for this retreat this weekend, I would just talk about them a little bit now, because they are a very important foundation for us in our practice, and they'll provide a kind of structure for your practice over the weekend. And then at the end of the retreat, as part of the sort of final thing that we do, there'll be an opportunity for those of you who wish to determine the three refuges and the five precepts. What I'm going to say over these days is are things that will be very familiar to many of you. Those of you who've been on even just one retreat will probably have heard most of what I say (laughs) at that retreat. And some of you may have heard it many, many times. But it's not really a matter of acquiring new bits of knowledge intellectually, but more kind of like a process of digestion. (laughs) So we take it in and it works in our system in a very mysterious way. So what I found is over the years hearing these teachings is that what happens is that each time I hear them, I tend to hear them a little bit differently. There are different things that seem important, that have meaning. And so I'm hoping that this is something that you'll find over the weekend, that each of you will hear them differently, different things will stand out. But hopefully for everybody, it'll be something that you find valuable, valuable in every aspect of your life. So the chanting that we did was a chant of praise, a chant of homage, a chant of appreciation. It's also called the Three Refuges. Triple Gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And these are like fundamental references for us in the context of our Buddhist practice. But as I talk about them a little bit, what you'll find is that they're actually universal qualities. So even if you don't like to think of yourself or aren't ready to label yourself as a Buddhist or may prefer to have some other label or no label at all, my sense is that what you'll find is that each of these refuges will be something that you can relate to, something has a meaning for you in your life. So the Buddha refers to the historical figure, the Siddhartha Gautama, who was born in a royal family about 2,600 years ago 
in what we now know as Lumbini, which is actually in Nepal, but in that time it was part of the northeastern part of India. So he was born, he grew up within the royal family, and at the age of 29, he saw through the values that had been presented to him as he was growing up. I mean, he was obviously, as a royal family, as a prince, the hope was that he would succeed to be the the ruler of the particular area in which he was living. But he realized about the age of 29 that this was not something that had any real meaning for him and that there was something much more significant that he could do with his life. A much more pressing need was to understand the suffering that human beings experience. Just through being born, just through having a body, we experience suffering. The body becomes uncomfortable, it gets old, it gets sick, it dies. These are all causes of suffering, struggle. And then the many other forms of subtler suffering, emotional suffering, psychological suffering that we experience, feelings of fear or inadequacy or pride or jealousy or all these anger, irritation, all these difficult emotional states that as human beings we have to experience. So he wanted to understand these. He wanted to understand to find a way to find peace, to find a way of no longer being bound by his desires, his wanting to get the things that he felt he didn't have and to get rid of the things that he felt he did have that he didn't want. So looking for a way to stop suffering, basically, to find what he referred to as the deathless, deathless reality. So he left home, he practiced various forms of asceticism, worked with different teachers, and eventually, through his own insight, his own effort, he came to an understanding He found what we call the deathless. He found that place of of perfect peace. Or he awakened. That's another way of describing it. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we remember the historical figure, but we also recollect our own capacity for being awake, for seeing clearly, for understanding things as they are. This is where our meditation is very important because. It supports us in learning in mindfulness, in being present. Many people may think that they're present, and much of the time we are present, but as we sit down quietly together, when I offer some guided meditation instruction, you'll begin to see that you're not always present, not always as present as you would like to be. Because the mind wanders, and this is what happens. So we're cultivating presence. And so our refuge in Buddha is about being present, fully present, alert, attentive, out of the way things are. So taking refuge in Buddha is taking refuge in the way things are, in presence, present moment awareness. The Dhamma is the truth or reality as we experience it. 
as we experience it when we're fully present. This is the kind of inner meaning of Dhamma. The more outer meaning is the teachings, the teachings that point to that truth. So even the Buddha can't actually give us the Dhamma. No one can give us the Dhamma. We have to realize the Dhamma for ourselves. It has to be tasted individually by the wise, known by each wise person for themselves. But the teachings point us, they direct us, they encourage us. They show us where to look. So it's like saying, look here, look here. So we learn how to apply the teachings in our own lives to our own situation. So that's the second refuge, Dhamma, the truth, as we experience it here and now. The third refuge is in the Sangha, which in one sense is community, like all of you. I mean, one of the things that I really loved about hearing from each of you was a sense of actually each one of us realizing that we're not alone, even though you're alone at home, or maybe with your husband or your wife. Basically, you're not actually physically together, but there's a sense of a virtual connection. In fact, I think that the way this virtual technology works, it's more than just a virtual connection. There is a kind of connection that happens over space, over the distance. We are, in a sense, all connected. And that's very, very supportive. So Sangha is just that sense of support that we get from being part of a, a much larger community. It's also, like when we think of the qualities of the Sangha, you know, those who have practiced well, those who have practiced directly with insight, with understanding, it also refers to the disciples of the Buddha who right from the time of the Buddha would gather around, would listen to the teachings, apply them in their lives, come to a realization, come to an understanding, liberating understanding, and then share that understanding with others. And in this way, the teaching is kept alive over the generations. So we may think, oh, well, I'm not like them. I'm not like one of the enlightened disciples. But what we have to remember is that we have the capacity to wake up, to be enlightened. And the Buddha's disciples, they weren't enlightened when they started off. You know, they came from all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, there was one who was a serial killer. Angulimala, he killed hundreds of people, and yet he became enlightened. So we all have the capacity. I mean, I hope we all haven't been serial killers, but <laughs> we all have the capacity, no matter how difficult your life has been or how many mistakes you feel you've made, don't forget that you have the capacity for perfect liberation. And so taking refuge in Sangha is like a celebration of our capacity and an affirmation of our intention to apply the teachings in our lives as best we can. So these are the refuges, the Buddha. So knowing that which knows, that sees things clearly, the Dhamma, the truth, as we experience it 
here and now, and the Sangha, that which aspires to live in accordance with this truth. So these are things that we make much of in our lives. And one of the reasons why we make much of them is because as our practice evolves, and as these refuges take on a kind of reality for us, it's not just a nice idea, a good idea. You think, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That sounds nice. It becomes a very real thing for us. And over time, I found that I rely on the refuges much more than I rely on my good ideas about things. <laughs> so we can have all kinds of ideas about the way things are and what we should do and who we are and whether we're any good or not and all kinds of ideas. But when we go for refuge to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we set those ideas to one side. We challenge them. We realize we don't actually have to believe these things but we can find out for ourselves directly. And this is very exciting. So having an opportunity like this weekend retreat is a chance to really apply these teachings and to really see how these refuges, it's not just a nice idea, it's not just words, things that we chant, you know, that we sort of pay respects to, but if we take it really into the heart, we'll find that they have a value far beyond any kind of good idea. This is why they're sometimes referred to as, as the triple gem. A gem is like a jewel, something very, very beautiful and, and immensely valuable. So these are like a kind of uh, something immensely valuable to us in our lives. And because of that, then as we do the pujas, it becomes more and more meaningful to us. Just a real sense of, Wow, thank goodness I found this. Isn't this wonderful? So I think what I would like to do now, and we've done a lot of listening, we've heard from each other, we've done the chanting, the puja, and I've spoken a little bit about the refuges and the precepts. Actually, maybe I should just say a little bit, a few words about the precepts, and then we'll sit quietly together. So the precepts... The reason I mention them is because, as I said, they're a kind of a structure for us. Basically, it's an undertaking to live carefully and responsibly. This is really important, particularly when we want to meditate, because one of the things that happens when we meditate, one of the things that happens when we go on retreat, is that we tend to remember things. <laughs> things come up. Maybe we've kind of pushed to one side buried amongst our, our busyness, our concerns of, of everyday living. But when we, for a moment, a short while, set aside time to be on retreat, they come up. And if we've done a lot of foolish, selfish, harmful things, then it's difficult. And imagine for each one of you, there'll be a few things like that that will arise for you. And you know, you'll think, oh dear, I wish I hadn't done that or, or feel uncomfortable or bad about what you've done. So the precepts actually support us in, in not doing too many of those things. So we undertake to avoid deliberately causing harm to anybody. 
you know, sometimes when you feel really angry and upset, you want to say something really mean to somebody or hurt them in some way. But when we've taken the precept, when we have the precept as a reference for us in our lives, we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Even though I feel like doing that, I'm not going to do that. I've undertaken not to deliberately cause harm to any living being. So other human beings, yourself, or any living creature, even you know, little tiny insects, you know, animals, or any being, we try to live with an attitude of, of respect and kindness towards all beings, even the ones we don't like very much. So not causing harm, that's the first one, panatipata. Second one is adinadana, which is refraining from taking what hasn't been given to us. So being really careful in all our dealings with others, not cheating, not taking anything that hasn't been given to us, being careful if we borrow something from somebody, we make sure we give it back. So it can be around very simple things or you know, even less simple things. In our monastic training, we have to be very, very careful around things like copyright and like if we're taking things from one country to another country that we don't take something that we should be paying tax for or something like that. So we have to be very, very careful around these things. So that's the second precept. The third precept for the purpose for this weekend is refraining from sexual misconduct. Of the five precepts, those of you who've been on retreats like a, in person will have taken the eight precepts where you refrain from any kind of sexual engagement, but uh, with the five precepts to refrain from sexual misconduct. So we're faithful to our partner. You know, we don't exploit each other or other people for our own pleasure and gratification. And we're very careful and responsible in the way that we relate to one another. When we're on retreat, when we're in the monastery, we relate to each other as spiritual brothers and sisters. The attitude is one of support and kindness and respect, rather than allowing ourselves to be drawn through our natural physical desires. So it's not that we shouldn't have physical desires, sexual desire, that's normal, but we choose not to follow it during this time of retreat. The fourth precept, refrain from, I mean, I like to say false and harmful speech. Sometimes it's translated as lying, but I find false and harmful speech is a more useful translation. So if you were staying in the monastery, we would ask you to keep quiet and not to say anything at all. Clearly, that's not realistic if you're at home with your family. But see if you can be a little bit quieter than you would normally be, depending on whether your family understand what you're doing. Try to avoid getting drawn into a lot of conversation and chit-chat. If you need to speak, then speak with an attitude of compassion, an attitude of kindness. You know, so you're not saying, well, I'm on retreat, I'm not going to talk to you. But, you know, you do talk to them. But this precept can actually help us to be more mindful around speech. Like often when I teach a retreat here in the monastery, and we've all been keeping noble silence, at the end of the retreat, we have a time where we practice noble speech rather than noble silence. And that's a very helpful exercise, just to be careful about how we use speech. 
how we talk to one another, how we talk to ourselves, actually. That's another important aspect. And then the fifth precept is to refrain from using intoxicants. So please, during this time of retreat, the idea is to have the mind clear and bright as far as possible. So not to take any alcohol or recreational drugs. If you need to take prescribed medication, then of course you carry on taking that. But we want to see the mind as it is. We want to work with the mind as it is. So there may be times when you feel a bit glum, times that you feel a bit sleepy, times that you feel a bit excited. And we work with that. We learn how to apply an appropriate antidote to those states. And if we can't do that, then to patiently bear with whatever it is that we may be experiencing. Because that's the only way that we can really see how things change. And that's a very important insight.